0: Our next speaker is Dr. John Patrick, and Dr. John Patrick has one wife, four biological children, one adopted child, 80 grandchildren in Africa, and 22 grandchildren here in the United States. He studied medicine at King's College and St. George's Hospital in London, and his primary academic interest in the field of medicine is in the treatment of protein energy malnutrition around the world. For 20 years, Dr. Patrick was an associate professor in clinical uh, nutrition in the departments of biochemistry and pediatrics at the University of Ottawa. And today you will find him as the president and as a professor at Augustine College, also in Ottawa. So with that, here to discuss the truth in science, uh, for the first time during this conference, he'll do it again tomorrow, is Dr. John Patrick. I don't know about you, but after seven hours of lecture, I need prayer. I imagine you do. So shall we start with prayer? Uh, Is that audible at the back? If I fade away and you can't hear, wave. If you wish to sleep, I I understand entirely. So let's pray. Father, we know that we need your spirit at this time of day, and we know that you promised that when we ask, you will always be present. And so we ask that you work in our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, so that something of value for the kingdom may be done today. In Christ's name. Amen. I used that full introduction for the first time, actually, in a secular setting last week in Jamaica, and it was very funny. Um, I go to Jamaica every year uh, to teach the first lecture in the ethics course of the medical school and do a few other things because... We have uh, many friends there because that's where I did the work on malnutrition funded by the Wellcome Trust in the 70s. Uh, uh, so my youngest actually is Jamaican as well as Canadian and British, so uh, he, he, he has no memories. Hopefully he'll go back there at some time. But uh, talking about ethics in, in the developing world is, can be quite a difficult topic these days, but uh, they don't even send someone to introduce me anymore. So I get there, find the lecture room, and go. And it's a big class, 400 students. And uh, I got to the point of saying, you don't know me from Adam, and I talked a little bit about the work that was done in Jamaica. And then I said, well, probably you might be of interested that I've been married to one woman for 50 years. Uh, it's amazing that she hasn't murdered me en route, but she didn't. Uh, and, we we have the grandchildren we have, and this I, I just mentioned the 22, and I said, actually, my oldest daughter in Malawi, who's been there for 15 years, has given me another 80, and the whole audience burst into applause. And there was no inkling after that of any antagonism to the fact that I was a dead white male. It worked beautifully. Uh, so here's one dead white, white male to talk to you a bit about science and and truth, now, uh, I grew up in a very uh, Bible-loving home uh, in a blue-collar environment. I, The only person in our family ever to go to university. Uh, the British system, uh, until after the Second World War, was very repressive. Uh, it was very hard for any working class guy to, to get out of the working class. Um, very tightly controlled in many ways. So few people went to university. I mean, to become a doctor before I went, I was in the first group that weren't in that category, all doctors before that paid to do their residency. Can you imagine that? That meant very few people could afford to go to university for five years and then do another five years with no pay. So only the upper class did medicine. And it showed up, I mean, on one occasion, one of my friends uh, had been doing obstetrics, and he'd been up all night, he'd fallen asleep on his bed, and then uh, the the obstetrician-gynaecologist came in, and uh, a very wealthy man, and the ward sister called him and said, you better get down here quickly, Mr. Charles has arrived. And he rushed downstairs, and Mr. Charles looked at him and said, get your man to press your trousers. He didn't realize what the world was actually like at all. <laughs> um, but that was the world when I started in medicine. But uh, just because it's that time of day, a little bit more anecdote is not inappropriate, especially if it's spiritually encouraging, right? Um, my grandfather on my mother's side was a Marxist trade union leader. And the first I thought for many for several years that uh, Churchill's Christian name was Brimstone because that's what my grandfather always called him. And the one thing I was certain of about Churchill when I was a little boy was that he had quite unjustly broken a miners' strike in Wales when they were striking for a living wage. They actually danced in the streets of Abu Vale when Churchill died. They never forgave him. Uh, I think he was repentant for what he did. That was early on in his political career, not during the war. Um, so if, if, the, if the socialists hadn't won the election after the Second World War, I wouldn't be standing before you today because the, the, the reason they threw Churchill out was that he was not going to change the social structure. And those men who had fought the war and had been massacred in the first world, they were not going to, have another world war in which there wasn't some reward for the working class and a perfectly legitimate one, and that was the Education Act and the Health Service, and uh, I have to be honest that the most enjoyable medicine I did was in the British Health Service because I was there when it started. Nobody abused the system. There wasn't a sense of entitlement I don't suppose if there are any doctors in this room, I know there's one at least, but I'm quite sure he has never had a a patient say to him when he's been called at night to go and see them, doctor, I'm sorry to get you out of bed. But that was the kind of environment it was. We weren't paid anything. My first check for 400 hours work, he did 100 hours a week, was 70 bucks. Uh, But you did live in the hospital, Everything was paid for. And you could leave your shoes outside your bedroom door and they were clean in the morning. That, that's a very different world. And it wasn't all bad. Uh, much of it was good. But my my mother was a very smart woman. So, and my father was a smart man, too. But both of them had, were, a, were never given the opportunities that they should have had. My mother, in particular. Um, she, was actually, she went to, to school to the age of 12, and teachers wanted her to stay and do more. And they said, we'll find some scholarships for you. But my grandfather would have none of it. He said, I'm having no favorites in this family. You will all be the same. Everybody else had started work at 12, you will too. Uh, but the grace of God put her next to a good woman. And she was smart. She didn't evangelize or preach. She just loved it. And when she would earned her brownie points, she said to her, we've got some interesting missionaries at our church this week. Would you like to come and listen to them? And my mother had got nothing better to do. She said, yeah, I'll come. Now, these missionaries were about as far as you could get from socialism because they had gone to the Congo with a man called C.T. Studd. And the mission that he founded... Uh, didn't believe in giving salaries to the missionaries. They were genuine faith missionaries. You went, if, you joined that, if you felt the call to join that mission, they would test your, your call and give you some training, and then off you went. And in their case, it was to the middle of the Aturi Forest. And they'd been there about 20 years, coming back every five or seven years when the money came to bring them home and they could go and visit churches and the like. And, of course, God had never let them down. So they had the most amazing stories to tell that didn't feature in the Marxist lexicon. Uh, My mother's jaw dropped, and she went back for two more nights, and she became a Christian. Uh, Now these good folk had someone to write to them, and my mother had someone to write to who was interesting because they decided that they couldn't... Follow God's call and have a family in the middle of the Aturi forest in the early part of the last century. Uh, so, when they came to England and young people became Christian as a result of what they had to say, they took them as children in the, Lord, in, in the Lord. What I didn't learn until I was 47 was that they learned, of course, when my mother got engaged, when she was married, when I was conceived. But I didn't learn until 47 years later that they had prayed for me every day from the day they heard I was conceived till the day they died when I was in my 30s. They did meet my wife. And they had prayed that I would become a Christian, I would become a doctor, and I would go to the Belgian Congo. Nobody told me. Now, the prayers were ridiculous. The first one was reasonable. If you join God's kingdom, It's because of grace, isn't it, first of all? He calls you, and you're given the grace to respond. Um, And basically, you're not brought into church by priests and pastors, are you? You're loved into it by the people around you. Uh, They see what love can do. You do. You, You don't even think about it until you meet other families and you realize how different it is. So you're loved into the church, first of all. Now, I don't remember when I didn't believe the story was true, Uh, I was smart enough to realize that Pascal's wager is absolutely on the nail at level one. Uh, That if you look at the options, it's where, I don't know if Jordan Peterson is here at the moment. Uh, In a way, I hope he's not, Uh, (laughs) but I I think the divine fisherman has him in his net, don't you? Uh, Just keep praying, Um, but that's the way it works. I didn't become an active Christian until I was in my 40s, which is remarkable. So uh, I, I grew up in a family that had never gone to university in a street of some 400 houses, where three boys went to university in 30 years, and only one became a doctor. Um, and then when I was uh, went to second, what do you call it, high school here, a secondary school in England, I got a scholarship that I hadn't applied for. It was due to a tick on a form um, that my mother had ticked. And I was transferred to the one of the two best schools in England for intellectual development. Uh, Tolkien was a pupil of that school a generation before me. And they let him go to the coffee shop for most of his last year at school because they knew he was teaching himself Icelandic. Um, it was a good school. They really taught you to think, and they give you a real joy of learning. But socialist pe- pe- um, government in Birmingham gave some money to the school, which is totally independent of the state, uh, but the state gave them money. The Brits are like that. You know, They pretend to be socialists, but they know elite education is essential to any nation, uh, and that's the way they did it. But. The socialist contribution from the city of Birmingham came with a very small affirmative action tag. They, they, they drew 100 boys a year from a population base of 6 million competitively. And uh, they said, we would like you to have two working class boys. I was one of them. Uh, you can imagine what it was like going from the British equivalent of Detroit... Uh, to that school and finding myself functioning in three languages or being expected to function in three languages within a year or so. um, It didn't bother me. I was just so overwhelmed with how exciting this all was. I don't ever remember any anxiety about it. Uh, It was just an incredibly good experience. But, uh, and we had a, a, a chapel service to begin every day. And even in elementary school, the Bible was read every day. That's an incredible thing that still goes on to a degree because the Brits understand the Bible is culturally necessary. Uh, Taking the Bible out of school is stupid. Um, If you're interested, you can go to my website and test what it has done to you. Because when the Bible isn't in the life of children, I'll talk about this some more at the end of the next lecture tomorrow. But when the Bible is not in the lives of children, they are deprived of a moral reference bank because the stories of the Bible are always morally consequential. And if you know them well, a single phrase can bring the story to life immediately. For such a time as this, how many of you immediately know what that story is? My goodness, it's only four or five Six, seven, yeah. I should think so, Father Malone. You would uh, be, there'd be some people turning in their grave if you didn't get it, coming from Ireland. Uh, It's the story of Esther. Perhaps it was for such a time as this. Any girl who knows that phrase and has an immediate response cannot not know what courage is. That's important. The last telegram sent from Dunkirk to London at the beginning of the Second World War was just three words, but if not, sent from Dunkirk to London. Arrived in London, immediately understood. And I'm not going to tell you the solution to that. You can stew on it. Uh, It will be good for you. I'll tell you tomorrow if you are still desperate. But it is an absolutely wonderful telegram to send. And it's Completely biblical. And it's easier than most because a concordance will take you there. Most of the examples I use have been modified enough not to allow a concordance to take you there. And of course, that's something else you must teach your children. It is now possible to quote the Bible in American universities. But you mustn't do it word perfectly. You must paraphrase it. And you mustn't tell them that it's the Bible. And... They're intelligent, but uneducated. So they recognize, when I quote the Bible in that way, that's rather too smart for him to have thought that up for himself. He must be quoting someone. And someone will sometimes say, who said that? I said, well, smart that you recognized a quotation. Who do you think said it? And they usually say Plato or Socrates. And I say, well, it was a wise man, but not that one. But the important thing is, do you think it's true? True. And I don't tell them that it's Christ, or Paul, or whoever it happens to be. And I'll be out of there before they work it out anyway. So all is well. <laughs> you have to play games through this world. And they don't know how to deal with it. Now, from that background, I ended up in the science stream. And I ended up doing medicine. Uh, and what I hadn't realized, it had already begun in that school, but it was held back because scripture was part of life and because we had superb teachers of English literature and the right. But once you got to university, university was boring compared to that school. I played truant a great deal. Uh, I think I went to about three quarters of the lectures. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to be an orthopedic surgeon, so I didn't bother with any orthopedics. And uh, you could learn enough from the book in 20 minutes to pass finals, so that was OK. Uh, and truant was much better. Certainly, rock climbing was much more fun than medical school. So I did a lot of it. Uh, and you could do that in those days because we had only two exams, and they were real. They threw forty percent out at eighteen months, and then at five years, they would. You could you could be asked any question they liked from five years' work. But obviously, they couldn't expect you to know everything. So it was good in that sense. And. I, as in those days, I had a superb memory, which is now disappearing uh, gradually. Uh, next time I'm here, if I come again, I'll probably have my name tag upside down just to keep me in touch with reality. For some um, it's it's an interesting world at my age to see what God does. I'm not pleased with aging. I don't know if any of the rest of you who are approaching 80 as I am uh, that enjoy aging. Uh, people tell me I should just be grateful that I don't look as though I'm 80, but that doesn't help at all. Uh, anyway, um, what had happened to me is I'd become a reductionist. And reductionism is one of the biggest things that has damaged us in the Western world. In fact, I usually say, let's back up just a little bit. The next, uh, the there turned out to be about six major ideas that I got wrong. I'm very good at getting the wrong answer first and then taking years and years to get to the right one. And these six actually sidelined my faith for about 20 years. And I've yet to go to a church where the young people could answer these questions. And that I think I've had a bad year if I haven't spoken to a Catholic congregation and a Pentecostal one. I want to cover... Uh, the whole range, because I care about the minds of the young and the dying Christian mind. So the first, worth writing these down, actually. The first one is reductionism. The second one is relativism, not physical relativism, but there are four forms, but the two that matter are moral and epistemological. The other two matter as well, but not as much. The third one is tolerance, which is desperately badly misunderstood, uh, the next one is multiculturalism, which is essentially a manipulating lie. Uh, the next one is being recognizing what the role of the sanctity of life is in a, in a culture, particularly in a culture of medicine. And finally, it is being able to defend Judeo-Christian sexual ethics in terms that the liberal can't withstand. Now, Nowadays I can do all six of those, uh, but for 20 years I couldn't. And, again, I will try and do something about those tomorrow. Uh, But I was supposed to be doing science and the truth in science. And, of course, reductionism is essential to science. So what I'm going to do now, after one or two more little initial prods to see if you're awake, uh, you're perfectly entitled to go to sleep. And when I lose you, I will quietly walk out and you can wake up when you're ready. I've not quite reached the Oxford professor in the early days when women arrived at the university. He walked in once, and there were only women in the audience. And he said, I see I don't have a quorum, and he walked out. (laughs) Uh, He couldn't get away with that today, could he? Uh, uh, And rightly so. Um, The first thing to say, and there have been a couple of elisions of this today. I think even Jordan Peterson elided it a little, which surprised me. Science and technology are very, very, very different. And you must recognize that difference. Uh, We misuse the word science all the while to get pseudo-credit in the public eye. Uh, The the difference between technology and science is very simple. All societies in the world have techniques. The French don't even have the American uh, neologism technology. They still talk about technique. Uh, And the only thing that matters to a technician is that what he's doing works. Whether it's the technique of putting on a roof or making bricks or whatever it is, or even making a computer. Uh, When the young people say, oh, I'm very good at computer science, no, they're not. They couldn't give you a proper account of how the computer came about. Uh, They know which buttons to press and what the software language is, but they don't have a deep understanding, in most cases, of how the thing works. they just know how to fix it. That's technique. Science comes from a word that means knowledge. Uh, And real science is the obsession with wanting to know what's going on. Now, I did my PhD. I got bored with medicine, or at least my wife got bored with the fact that I went out seeing patients before the children were awake and came back after they were asleep and insisted that I do something different for a bit when the children were small. Uh, And so I did a PhD to see my children, which is a very unusual reason to do it, but it's a very good one. If you raise your own money, the boss can't tell you which hours to work. Um, It worked very well. Uh, But I was also fascinated from the first time I came across it that at this moment, you're using about 45% of your energy on a single transport system in the body. And I doubt whether any of you could name it. Right. No. Yes? Hmm? No, no, a single protein that runs a single system, not a whole, bar, not a physiological system. It, it's, a, it's a pump that's present in every cell membrane in the body. And it creates the membrane potential that we have across every cell in our body. Everything's run by electricity in the body. Hmm? No, no, that's a much bigger system. It's, it's an NAKATPA is to give it its name. It's usually called a sodium pump nowadays. Uh, it, it generates, by uneven pumping of sodium, potassium, the potential that keeps us all alive and everything working. And it's about 45% of our energy spent on it. Uh, it's what took me into malnutrition as well in due course. Because uh, my PhD, when I'd finished it, I'd invented new technique, which is always nice because you control the literature for a bit, especially if you're as cynical as I was and some key details of the method were left out initially in the papers that were published. Uh, that gives you another two or three years before anybody can catch up with you and life is easy. Um, uh, so, uh, I went to the Wellcome Trust and because when I'd finished my PhD, my wife said, you're not going back to internal medicine, are you? And it wasn't a question. Uh, and she said, you promised me we'd travel. Find something useful to do with your PhD in a nice place. She's always wanting me to be useful, which is not likely to happen very often, but it does occasionally. Um, So I went cynically through the world literature and found, to my amazement, that there had to be a problem in malnutrition. World vision always shows a malnourished child who's swollen with flaky paint skin, who looks as miserable as can be. That's only about half percent of the total burden of malnutrition. And it's the only one that has the swelling. The other ones are just dreadfully thin, 10-pound two-year-olds. And the difference between the two is the amount of salt in the body so there had to be something wrong with how salt was handled in the body of crush your core children and in fact to this day uh, it's the only measurement that you can make in the laboratory that will distinguish those two nothing else will Uh, i was right in my hypothesis and uh, so we went for two years and we actually stayed for nearly seven in jamaica which is Lovely place to bring up your children and not have to bother about the rest of the world. Didn't go to international meetings because nobody was working on the same subject. Why bother? It was much nicer snorkelling on the north coast at the weekend. Uh, Wonderful life, uh, but very irresponsible. Um, So science is about this drivenness to to understand. And when I started trying to do what I wanted to do, I was 18 months into my uh, PhD, and I hadn't got a single result. And then I got meningitis, which is amazing. I'd done two years of infectious diseases before. and never got sick. Uh, I do a PhD, and I get meningitis. Um, That's extraordinary. (laughs) But it was exactly what I needed, because I was off, off work for nearly three months. And of course, thinking about what was going on, I went back and two years later, I'd got a string of papers, you know, it had worked. I'd also been the proximate cause of the conversion of a man who subsequently became uh, head of personnel for Rolls-Royce. And he laughingly said, he's dead now, he said, you got meningitis so that I would become a Christian. Because like me, he was a working class boy, but from Derby, and his dad had made him leave school at 15 to earn brass. Uh, not as bad as my mother's generation. And he had a good teacher who said, David, go to night school. You're, f- you're smart. So he signed on as an ap- apprentice electrician at Rolls-Royce and went to night school and got a uh, degree in mathematics in three and a half years. Uh, Rolls understood within weeks that this wasn't an electrician they'd got on their hands, and Rolls was a good company. They don't care that he hadn't got a degree. Very shortly, he was running the heat flux analysis division of Rolls-Royce. Um, Americans would come over to look at what was going on and they'd go around this bit of Rolls-Royce and then they'd be introduced to David and they'd say, Dr. Dawson, this is very impressive work. And he'd say, Mr. Dawson. And Rolls were very embarrassed by that. They said, we'll pay for you to get a PhD. And his response is, what the hell do I want a PhD for? I have to teach those guys what to do. And they managed to get him to do an MSc in nuclear engineering at uh, the Greenwich Naval College because that was a one-year program. He was bored stiff, but he moved in next to us in a little block of six apartments just before I got meningitis. And all that summer he came home early because he was bored and we played chess in in the garden as I was recovering. And then I didn't know that he was deeply discontented. Everything he touched turned to gold. He never bought a new car. He just went to the junkyard and found three of the same model, took them to pieces and built another one. He built his own house. He was that kind of guy. He once flew all the way to Jamaica to change the, to adjust the engine of my Zarb because it was the only Zarb in Jamaica. Uh, that kind of guy. But he was very unhappy and he didn't know why. No contentment. The Augustine syndrome, you know, the restless heart. He just couldn't deal with it. And then one day we were playing chess, I got a headache, and so I had to go in and lie down. The next day when he came back from the the Naval College, he said, have you got any more books like that one? And I said, oh, that's where it went. He's the only guy in the world I know who was converted by reading a commentary on the book of Habakkuk. (laughs) But it's very appropriate for somebody who is very uh, unhappy. Because Habakkuk was very unhappy with God, and yet he writes one of the most beautiful poems in the Old Testament at the end of the book. So I gave him Mere Christianity as the next book, and three days later he came to church with me, and that was it. That's lovely when that happens. There's one thing that reduces me to tears in my life now, and that is when grace erupts into someone's life. That is just so overwhelming to me, invariably takes me to tears. I can walk into a famine or a triage situation and do triage. I'm not going to shed a tear. Am I in the previous speaker's structure, my left brain is the only one that operates at that point. You know, I'm analytical to the nth degree. Uh, you know, It's a challenge and I enjoy it. Uh, going into a cholera epidemic and they've run out of Fluid, what do you do? Well, you do it in a 50-gallon drum, and you do it orally, because the error in your measurement will still be satisfactory. I save life that way. Uh, Those kinds of things fascinate me. But grace, oh, that's a different matter. And we do need that the truth of grace in our lives show. It's got to be things that you can't not talk about. Uh, I don't know whether to tell you the next short story because I was talking to Sean, was it? Yeah, and saying, at this time of day, you're like children, it's story time really, but the stories have purpose. But this one I wasn't intending to say, but I will. Um, In 1994, a war blew up in Rwanda. We were on the borders of Rwanda, i had been there every summer for 10 years. I'd had a project running there. Um, my wife was on the board of World Relief Canada and we heard about this war while we were doing actually a seven-day walk through the Itumbe Mountains and sleeping out two nights because there was no village. Uh, it's right on the equator. As soon as we got back, Sally went up to see what was going on and she got trapped on the wrong side of the bridge in Rwanda, uh, but managed to bribe the guards at the border. She was white, they were not fighting her. Uh, And she got across the bridge while they were shooting people trying to swim the river. Uh, She was in Gomo when thousands of people died of cholera before the UN died. I was not with her at that point. Uh, That was the year our youngest went to university and I realised she was not going to come back in September because there were seven-year-olds trying to care for four-year-olds on the streets of Bukavu. It was total chaos. She ended up running four or five refugee camps for the next two years. Um, She did an amazing job. Um, I went out the next summer to see her, and she knows I don't suffer from uh, jet lag. So the morning after I got there, she said, oh, by the way, uh, you're coming with me to talk to the leaders of my camps this morning. I said, and what am I going to say? She said, you are exactly who they need. I said, how can that possibly be? I have never been a refugee. I've never, been, I've never lost everything as they have. She said, you're still exactly who they need. Uh, and no point in arguing with her. I went. And we talked for about three hours. And then we got to the question. You have to, remember, you have to know that 80% of the Rwandais were in church on Sunday morning, one of the most church going nations in the world before that war. Roughly half and half. Uh, Catholic and Evangelical Protestant. Both groups had killed people they'd sat next to in church simply because they belonged to the other tribe. It was not a planned genocide. It was an outpouring of evil. Uh, So we got to this point. They They said, how could we do that? Which is a good question, isn't it? And I said, well, welcome to the club. Every religious group on earth has killed other people in that kind of way at some point in their history. Christians have done it many times. Jews have done it. Muslims do it all the while. Uh, even, even the so-called peaceful Buddhists do it, and the best killers by far, far, of course, are the 20th century liberals who believe there is no God that matters. They're all believers, and they all do it. Fortunately, my good friend David Jeffrey had written a wonderful account of Britain's reconversion, really, under Gregory. Uh, it was Norsemen and carnage on a scale that even Rwanda hadn't seen, just as the norm. And Gregory sent the missionaries. They got to the English Channel, heard how bad it was, they went back to Rome. So Gregory said, you've been sent, you have to go. And he prayed with them, and back they went. And he gave them wise advice. Don't preach, just live loving one another for a year before you start preaching. And within, after that year, within no time flat, England was evangelized, but it was 400 years before Judeo-Christian virtues began to emerge, really emerging with Alfred. And typically, it's 200 years before a pagan society historically gets to anything that might be recognized as Judeo-Christian ethics, Uh, which is an interesting thing. The day after you become a serious Christian, do you become good? No. You are redeemed. And many of the good people in your church are cradle Protestants or cradle Catholics and are not actually Christian. Uh, they're good people because of their cultural upbringing, but they've never met Jesus. He's not central to their lives. Uh, that's an entirely different matter. And reductionism comes in the way we talk about that, and I'll come to that in a moment. So, science and technology are very different. I didn't finish the story, which I said I would. I'd better. The last thing my wife asked me to do, I spent the whole of that summer teaching every other day for between three and five hours, for two months in the refugee camps. I was in tears, they were in tears, and I was simultaneously the happiest man in the world. I subjectively felt his pleasure that year. I'd made a ve- for the first time in my life that summer. I'd prayed. I'd said in my prayers, "Lord, I've got nothing to do this summer. Have you got any work for me?" I had done Christian things before that, but I had always chosen which Christian things it would be. That summer, I gave God carte blanche, and my goodness, did he use it! It was amazing. But the most amazing bit was the very last thing that happened. Sally said. There are a lot of pastors and priests in the camp. They would do well to have a weekend with you so that you could give them material that would help them with their congregations. And I can twist the UN arm, and we'll open up a mission station. The missionaries had all run away. Uh, They couldn't handle the carnage. So there are lots of locked mission stations in the area. So she got permission. She'd got the keys, she opened up. We had about a hundred pastors and priests, and I talked for three days. And then, at the end, uh, I just finished. One Rwandan pastor, uh, who spoke very good English, came and thanked me very beautifully. And then he turned to my wife and said, "And your wife is the most honoured lady in all these camps. I will never, ever forget that moment." Um, I was in tears. Who wouldn't be Uh, in the middle of all their horror to see how Christianity can work out? That's grace. There's nothing else to describe it. And if you don't have that kind of witness, ask God to take you into a place where you will have that kind of witness, and he'll do it. He doesn't promise you a comfortable time. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. But he does promise you a safe arrival. You don't know whether it's back here or in heaven. That's But either way, it'll be fine. And encourage your children to do the same. And the best thing I did with all my children was from age 13 onwards, I trained them to resuscitate malnourished children. They did it every summer, breaking all Canada's child labour laws. Uh, but they loved it. They didn't get paid either. but. It transformed their lives. All my children had African children die in their arms when they were teenagers, but they saved many more. Because they couldn't stand high school when they got back. They did the last two years by correspondence because a bad head, they really didn't count in their lexicon anymore. Uh, take those opportunities. As Catholic or Protestant, you've got many opportunities to go overseas and, and help. If you want to see a living faith, go to Africa. Um, Don't miss the opportunity. Now, the the other thing I want to say about science before I get into a bit of history of science is to point the finger towards the Jews. The Jews win about half of the hard Nobel prizes every year. I don't mean the silly ones like peace, which are political and they're given to rogues and all sorts, you know, uh, people who don't mind destroying science like uh, the people who are in the the nonsense about carbon dioxide. I mean, carbon dioxide is a pollutant? Give me a break. You know, that's that's nonsense. Of course you know uh, I hope you all know the one thing that the very small rise in CO two has done. It's not temperature rise. An area roughly the size of India is now green that wasn't before the CO two went up that little bit. It's God's way of keeping his promise that there will always be sufficient food on the Earth. That's what he really is. Um, I mean, horticulturists for years have been raising the CO2 level in their greenhouses because you get more leaves. We didn't invent feedback systems. God did. This is just one of them. Uh, go to NASA. Even NASA has had to publish the, the maps. The, uh, and look, look up Global Greening. It's an amazing read. Uh, But the Jews win the real ones. Medicine, biology, physics, not the silly ones. Why do they win them? It even intrigues them. The Orthodox Jews have an answer. And they send you to Deuteronomy 6. And I'll get back to that too tomorrow. Because it should be at the end of the conference. But they... They have dominated science. They were late comers. They didn't really come into the scene until the 18th century at the earliest, but they dominate it now. Next, I wanted to to point out to you that there are two silly nonsenses that still circulate broadly, and one is that there's a war between science and faith. That is blatantly untrue. And in fact, historians of science wouldn't tolerate that. If you go to a meeting of professional historians of science, they would say something like this. It is true that the church was not a perfect patron of science, because as always, the church wanted to control. And that wasn't a Christian thing. That was a human thing. Uh, But it is true that the church was the only patron of science. And you need to know that story. The nicest short account of that that I know is in a book by Rodney Stark called *The Glory of, For the Glory of God. Rodney Stark was an unbeliever, a sociologist who became interested in the sociology of religion, which ultimately led to his conversion. And in that book, he gives a, in one chapter, he does a brilliant précis of the standard textbook for The Genesis of Science, which is David Lindbergh's book, The Beginnings of Western Science, published by the University of Chicago Press. But um, Stark opens with the classic story that everybody in America seems to know, although it's absolutely untrue. It was Dixon White who was founder, was it Columbia or Cornell? I always get that wrong. Anybody remember? Anyway, the very secular of those two. Uh, And he admitted later in his life that he'd fabricated what he wrote. And he knew that nobody would look it up. So he fabricated a story that when Columbus wanted to set out for America, the Bishop of Souto in Portugal tried to stop him going. And that's perfectly true. He did. Uh, But White goes on to say, because uh, they knew that the earth was flat. That's absolutely not true. Uh, They knew that it was round. The the standard textbook for astronomy in the Middle Ages was the sphere, and the sphere was us. Uh, People sitting in the desert watching eclipses, they're not stupid. They realized that the Earth was casting a shadow on the sun in some way. Uh, They knew it was a sphere. What the Bishop of Souter knew was that the model that uh, Columbus was using was the worst one, far too small a figure for the size of the earth, and he was going to die at sea, because nobody knew about America. He thought that Japan was roughly 2,000 miles away. Uh, It's not. Uh, So he was going to die at sea. He went anyway, and he only survived because America was there to run into, and the, uh, the crew were just about to, you know, mutiny when they hit land. And Stark goes on to say, I actually quoted Dixon White in the second paper I ever wrote thinking it was right. It's not true. So, and we, still, you find people who are coming out of history departments who are still fabricating this nonsense, which is simply untrue. So, science and faith, no. The church had to give up its desire for power, and that was good, uh, but it did also provide. Uh, a lot of base for science to take place. So the second nonsense that goes on is to call the endarkenment the source of science. I refuse to call it enlightenment. It wasn't. It was an endarkenment. Uh, I got that from McIntyre, and he's absolutely right. Uh, science began long before that. And it began where else? It couldn't, it couldn't start anywhere else. It started in the church. Uh, a reasonable date is 1277, and Aquinas had died a few years before after achieving the greatest intellectual feat in five centuries of synthesizing Aristotle and the Bible. He never finished it, by the way. And the reason he didn't finish it is fascinating. He had a, he, he, he had a vision of Christ. And Christ said to him, it is well done, Thomas, what do you wish. And Thomas said, only you, O Lord. And he never finished the Summa. When asked why, and he died a few weeks later, when asked why he was not doing any more writing, he said of the greatest intellectual feat in 500 years that it was just straw, mere straw, he said. That tells us something about what heaven is going to be like, doesn't it? You take the greatest things we've ever done and we're going to look upon them as straw when we get to heaven and we won't mind them being straw because it was... Straw done with good intent, and that's what the Lord looks on. Not what we actually do, but the state of our hearts. So you need to know that. And we have much that we can be proud of. So Thomas died, but all the universities, which were starting around the same time in the 12th century and thereabouts, loved what Thomas had done because they had new tools. Greek deductive logic was a powerful tool. So it was taught everywhere. The bishop who was most modern in the sense that my mother was, for instance, when she sent me off to university and told me to be beware of philosophers, uh, quoting St. Paul, of course. Uh, of course, the first thing I did was take a course in philosophy. Uh, but that way is the way it was. And the Bishop of Paris was wondering whether this new synthesis of Greek philosophy, pagan philosophy, and the Bible might not lead the humble poor astray in their faith. Um, And so there was a ban placed on some of the writings of Thomas and others. But, of course, it didn't make any real difference. Uh, They still did it in the dark. In fact, Oxford never even began to not do it. It was only Paris that was stuck And I imagine that what happened was, you can imagine if you're a professor and it's August and you're suddenly told by the boss that you can't use your notes from last year, you're not going to be a happy teacher, are you? I think they probably went to the pub and got drunk first, so to speak. And uh, uh, when they'd sobered up, they uh, said something like this, you know, the Bible tells us that we should have some dominance over nature, but we don't have much. Very little to show by that time. Maybe it's because we're going about it the wrong way. We're trying to argue from God all the way down every step of the way to the particulars of life. And we get lost on the way every time. We've never made it to practicality. But maybe we can go the other way around. We can start from little things and work upwards. But you would only even begin to think about that if you believed that God was a God of order. No pagan can understand our technologies because they believe in evil spirits. We wrote the definitive protocols for the treatment of malnourished children in Jamaica in the 1970s. When I left Jamaica in 1979, we went through the last hundred babies to go through the unit, all of whom were 10-pound two-year-olds or worse, which will mean something to mothers, but not to some fathers. Uh, We saved every single one. We didn't have a single death. We'd done the science. I expected to see the prevalence of malnutrition in Africa drop. It hasn't shifted at all in the next 30 years, which is when I went to Africa to try to understand. I think the reason is that they believe that everything that happens happens because of evil spirits. And evil spirits are actually a better description of, or make better sense of your life in Central Africa than the Christian story does. I mean, Imagine, would you believe in a God of love if half your children didn't make it to maturity, your crops failed apparently at random, and you had some of the worst governments in the world? There's not a great deal of evidence for a God of love in that scenario, is there? But evil spirits make complete sense of it, particularly that children die in this hut and not in that one. Different evil spirit, different outcome. I'd become somewhat aware of this when I found women who were giving their children very odd names like not quite not wanted in the bible but certainly broom or shovel or something like that names that were not beautiful or nice at all and then I found out why they'd lost a lot of children and they thought if they gave their children names like that the evil spirits wouldn't bother to kill them it was rational but if you believe in evil spirits it explains life but it it doesn't give you any grounds at all to do inductive reasoning, which is at the heart of the scientific method. The modern university teaches its deductive hypothetical model. That's just because they don't want to admit that it's inductive. Because when you think about that, you realize, unless you believe there's order underneath the surface chaos of life, and only Christians have reasons for doing that, Judeo-Christians, Muslims don't because Allah is arbitrary. Uh, But we have. That's why we started doing it. Now, it didn't work immediately, but it worked pretty quickly. Within about 50 years or so, Merton College was the next place where things started to happen. They drew the first, in Oxford that is, they drew the first graph and didn't know what they'd done. We teach graphing now to children that's in kindergarten almost, don't we? Uh, But they drew one and it took about 100 years to understand what they'd done. I mean, Aristotle never got to velocity, probably the smartest man that ever lived after Christ, you know, but it takes a long while to see some things which once you see them are absolutely obvious and you wonder why you never saw it before. But it started to make progress. Names that we ought to know, and I doubt whether Gross Tester, Bradwardine, Swine's Head and a few others like that, you've never heard the names, but they should be our heroes. Another man was at Oxford at the time whose name you probably have heard, and that was William of Ockham. You probably know him as Ockham's Razor. He, uh, that's o- usually spelled O-C-C-A-M. Now, the Ockham is really O-C-K-H-A-M, which is where he was born. Uh, a very smart Franciscan who was smart enough to see that what was beginning to happen in Oxford was going to work. And he tried to defend God. Never defend God. He can do it himself much better. You bear witness to God, you don't defend him. It's foolish to talk about defending God. Uh, And what Occam did was to try and pull apart the immaterial world and the material world. Uh, Because, of course, science can only deal with the material world. So... It was called nominalism to begin with. And he said things like love and justice and honor and faith are just words, hence nominalism. They have no material existence, do they? Yet I can say to any uh, student audience on this continent, the more liberal the university, the easier it is to do it. Uh, It doesn't matter what the title of the lecture is. I can always say what I like. Uh, And this will come in if I get prompted. Uh, I don't work from notes to any significant degree because I've learned that if I pay attention, every now and again, God tells me to say something I hadn't thought about, and I can almost guarantee somebody's gonna come and talk to me afterwards about what I said. And it was nothing to do with me, really. Uh, But this one works every time, you can do it. Uh, So I'll say something like this. I'll say, I've only been in your university a few hours and I haven't met very many of you, but I know some things about you. I know, for instance, that all of you hate divorce. And you can see the body language tighten up of everybody who feels some loyalty to parents who've divorced. Basically, they're about to shout at me. I don't give them time to do that. I say, I I can see you think I'm politically incorrect, but let me explain to you. If it hasn't happened to you, it's happened to your friends. Has any child ever enjoyed it? That's a no brainer, isn't it? No child has enjoyed it. They may later come to see that it was necessary because they didn't receive counseling before marriage, it was a stupid marriage, etc., etc. They didn't enjoy it. Then I go on and say, I have a colleague that I met only once, but. She's been saying to her class for 20 years that if you will keep my four rules, I will pay you $1,000 if you divorce. But I'm sorry, that's not tonight's subject, and I must move on. That will even get girls in the audience who wouldn't say anything normally to say, what are the rules, please? And so I get a chance to tell them. No, Occam was wrong, but he was powerful. Because by pulling apart the metaphysical world and the physical world, the physical world took off. He went to Paris next with the great Nicole Oresme and Buridan, who were superb uh, scientists. And Oresme was uh, very smart. I, th- I think he made it to cardinal. I'm not sure. He's certainly a bishop. And he knew how to deal with these things which might cause some trouble theologically by doing them as imaginative exercises. Uh, so he thought about the rotation of the earth and things like that. Real progress was being made. And then Galileo started to roll a ball down an inclined plane, changing the angle, measuring where the ball fell, and he put a man in the moon. He put a man on the moon, he didn't know it, but that was the beginning of real physics. And it was hands-off then. Copernicus was not really in that category. He he understood, as he said, God couldn't make anything as ugly as Ptolemy's model. And by the way, Another error that occurred today is to say something works. It's got to be true. That's not true. Ptolemy's um, model was untrue, but it worked. Uh, It worked better than or as well as Copernicus, and Copernicus had to put the same sort of epicycles and things in to, to make his model work, to predict the eclipses and give us a calendar. The man who made the major step in that direction was Kepler. What's interesting about Kepler is he was a very, very... All four men who changed our world for us, um, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton, they were all Christian. Uh, Admittedly, Newton was a rather odd Christian, uh, but Kepler was a mystic in many ways, but he was a brilliant man, and he had an incredibly hard life. I mean, most of his children died. He was pushed from pillar to post by the Thirty Years' War, but he never stopped. And he reworked the data of Tycho Brahe for about six years, by hand. uh, Because he knew that he'd got his hands on gold, because Brahe was the first person in Western history who actually thought about the measurements I make only approximate to the truth. And he could measure how accurate he was. So he was the first person to think of those measurements as plus or minus a certain amount. But he knew the truth had to lie in that space, even though he couldn't say exactly what it was. That was a huge step forward. Uh, and so, he, six years still obsessed by Aristotle and perfect circles. And then he says, he didn't work it out, God showed him. God doesn't like perfect circles very much. He can make them. He made one or two in the body just for fun, I think. Uh, but he likes m- more beautiful shapes. And of course, what uh, Kepler discovered was that an ellipse was a much better way to look at the movement of the planets with, uh, the Earth at one, with the sun at one focus. And they gave him the three laws, and we were away to the races. Newton then the mathematics in a book that will never be repeated, as as a single author book, nothing will come close to Newton ever again, but he he showed that gravity would provide the force for all this. So in a a space of less than 100 years, we'd suddenly got very accurate descriptions without lots of epicycles um, that explained and people were impressed. Newton was very clear. He said, I have not. I do not pretend to tell you the truth. I just pretend to give you mathematical models that work. But the Newtonians thought he got it right. Of course, he hadn't completely, but he, pretty good job. And everything took off. So within 100 years of that, you have Laplace talking to Napoleon. And Napoleon says, where does God fit in this science you're explaining to me? And Laplace, a practicing Catholic, but also one of the Uh, greatest reductionists of all time said, sire, I have no need of the hypothesis of God to explain physics. And we had got a tacitly atheistic physics. And it lasted up up until basically the last 50 years or so. It's dying now, uh, steadily. Uh, It won't be the same problem in a very short time. So the other people who play into this, of course, are Descartes and Bacon, Uh, Descartes was also a reductionist, and he was wrong in the way he went about it. Uh, Bacon was even more dangerous when he said collect facts. I mean, the, the word fact was used this morning, but facts changed their meaning in the 17th century. Before the 17th century, theologians dominated the world, and moral facts were more reliable than physical ones. After the 17th century, you, when you hear the word fact, think of physical facts, don't you? But as Christians, we ought to say, no, there are moral facts, too. The fact-value distinction is true. Clever people in the universe, you say, oh, I can provide you with examples that shows it's not true. But they're cheating, as always. They can get a prudential relationship between fact and value. If you want to catch this train, you must go now. That's a kind of uh, injunction. But you don't need it. You can just do it as physical facts. Train's going in 50 minutes. You want to get on it. It takes you forty-five minutes to get to the airport. You must, uh, the station. You must go now. That's not fact value. But physical facts do not tell you how to behave. Uh, since I only know Father Moran's name, I'll use him as my victim. You know, I do know a few others, but you were in full view, so you're going to be the victim. You don't mind, do you? You no, you're an Irishman, and English are allowed to do this to the Irish anyway. Um, but. I want you to imagine, thank you, that uh, he's a very wealthy man and that he has cancer. And last week in my laboratory, I invented a cure for his cancer. Ought I to give it to him? You've got to do some work on your friends, you know. Ought I to give it to him? Not one is willing to stand up for you. Uh, One, one, two. I mean, there's not much much human kindness here, is there really? Uh. (laughs) But what if I'm a real Darwinian and I know that I inherit his estate when he dies? What would a Darwinian do? He would keep it, wouldn't he? to get the immediate winnings of his estate and the later winnings from marketing the drug. I've got lots of grandchildren to spend the money on, after all, and advance my genes over his. The one thing that Darwin can never give us is a moral structure. And uh, fortunately for us, the best account of why that will not work is by an atheist. And I love it when atheists speak the truth. I collect atheists who speak the truth. And this man is Australia's best analytical philosopher who committed suicide when he found he'd got cancer, which is perfectly rational for an atheist. But not before he'd written a book with the lovely title Darwinian Fairy Tales. If you want a Christmas read that will make you chuckle and also educate you, this is your book. Uh, The chapter titles will get you. You know, The Horse in the Bathroom, Tax and the Single Girl. I mean, you, you want to read the book already, don't you? But, but he says, I couldn't care less about Darwin. He may or may not explain a lot of what's happened on earth, but it absolutely does not give us morality. And he shows you why. And it's because you can't get an ought from an is, as I've just demonstrated to you at the expense of Father Moran. Is and ought cannot be connected by any logical route without importing the idea that to save life is good, and that came from moral facts and theology, not from being a human being. There's no love of that sort in my cows on my farm. They, they just have reflexes. Uh, they do not have morality. And that's an argument you need to get down. Very important in arguing about abortion. Where's my timekeeper, by the way? You're still listening to me, it's amazing. It's, time is up, is it? It's finished, two minutes. Well, the rest will have to wait for tomorrow, but I will finish with this, because you might want to say some more. One of the most difficult things for me, in that list I gave you, was the sanctity of life. I was pro-choice for 20 years over rubella babies. Before we had a vaccine for rubella, rubella caused very serious neurological and cardiac problems. And... Uh, I was doing infectious diseases in London at that time, so every now and again a woman would come along and say, I'm pregnant and I've got this rash. Is it German measles? And I'd say, well, the rash is compatible with German measles, but there are lots of viruses that give that kind of rash. We'll take some blood today, some more in a, a week's time, and then I'll see you two days later and we can work it all out. Now, in most cases, the news is good. But every now and again, one had to tell a woman that, given where you are in your pregnancy and the fact that this is rubella, you are facing something like a 90% probability that your baby will have major neurological and cardiac problems. That's not easy news to give, is it? We didn't give it quite so bluntly as that, but that's what, in effect, we had to say. And what we said next was, this pregnancy's gone wrong, hasn't it? And is there a mother who wouldn't immediately say yes to that, at least at first sight, unless they've been very well trained? And they all said yes. And then we said, well, we can make that happen. You'll have to come into hospital very briefly and then you can start again. We never used the word abortion. It was strictly illegal at the time, but there was no risk, the police would never go after us. And the important point is I felt no guilt because I'd already been reduced in the sense that I now looked upon medicine as purely a problem-solving profession. Isolate the problem, define it, provide an answer. No morality required. So I felt no guilt. If I'd met Benedict before that, I would have known that feeling is not what you need in conscience, it's thinking. I didn't do that for 20 years. So I went on my way. Even when the guy who I chose to deliver our first two babies never got the job he should have had because he wouldn't do abortions. The Brits, of course, being snide, never said, we're not giving you the job because you wouldn't do abortion. But he was either overqualified or underqualified and never just right. Because, of course, if you appoint a gynecologist to the staff who won't do abortions, the other guys have to do more because it would have been made legal by that time. Nobody likes doing it. If you do, there's something wrong with your psyche. So I didn't do anything about it for a long while. In fact, as I said, it was about a dozen years ago, in fact. So that makes it a a very long while perhaps a bit more than that, 15 years. One afternoon when God was working on me and removing me from my laboratory to what I do now, I went to my office, and abortion for some reason was bothering me. And I said, well, I, I accept that that's a woman's issue and a man has, should say nothing about it. But can I think that? i had never asked myself that question in 20 years. God had given me a good mind, and I hadn't used it. I sat down that afternoon, and by the end of the afternoon, I knew I couldn't think that. And I also knew that I didn't think anybody could resist the argument. I didn't want to get in, into this can of worms. I didn't say anything to anybody. I did call Robert Spitzer, whom I know, and said to him, Robert, I'm in trouble. Uh, I think I have an argument against abortion. And he said, tell me. And he said, that will work, you know. I said, that's not what I wanted to hear. Uh, I said, nothing. But my wife had set up a website for me. And I laughed and said, who's going to go there? She was right. I was wrong. But the modern students are bored in a lecture. They start surfing. And I'm on that list of places they surf. And it wasn't long before I got a call from Detroit. They saw I was going to Ann Arbor to give a lecture, and they're smart, they knew I lived in Ottawa. I have to go through Detroit to get to Ann Arbor. It was Wayne State, the black, largely black university, medical school, high abortion rates. They said, "Uh, will you talk to us first? And I said, of course, no problem. What do you want me to talk about? And then they said, "It, it will be January the 23rd. We want you to talk about abortion in the middle of the day. I said, sorry, I don't do that. And they said, why? And I said, I've no desire to be lynched in public. And uh, they said, we've heard you talk. We think you could do it. I said, flattery will get you nowhere. Uh, And then they did the Christian thing and said, we've been praying about it. And I knew that it was going to happen at some point, and this was going to be it. And I said, well, make sure the lecture room has an escape hatch next to the lectern, like about there. Uh, and take me to Ann Arbor immediately after the lecture, and I'll do it. I needn't bothered. The lecture ended in dead silence, as it has done every time since. I've done it probably 80 times now. Harvard, Minnesota, Wisconsin, California, Oxford, St. Petersburg, Sydney. Never had a single aggressive question, even Cuba. Why? The last line in that lecture is, I have laid out two worlds for you. Which one do you want to give to your children? And it's the pro-life one. Now, I haven't told you how the lecture works, uh, but my time is up. Uh, I think you have a copy of that lecture, don't you? Uh, So it's free to copy it. It's called Justice for the Unborn. Uh, It was a gift from God. The essential thing to realize, is that we get the argument wrong by starting in the wrong place. The first thing to do is to diffuse the abortion issue as such. And I do it thus, just to take an extra minute. I can say to any group of medical students within six weeks of them starting medical school, if I were to say to you that you've already decided that there are people in your class to whom you will never trust the care of a dog of yours, what will you say? And all around the room, there are ironic smiles. The answer is yes. Within six weeks, they know that there are very untrustworthy people in medical school. And I say, and if we took a consensus vote about who those people are, would there be agreement? And the answer is yes, again. And then I say, I suppose they're the people who are not here today. And the answer is yes, again. Now I've cleared the ground. I say, now, let's go the next step. Those of you that remain, if I remove sex and death from the discussion, do you trust one another to do decent ethical medicine? And the answer is yes. But if I put sexuality, abortion, and death into it, there's no possibility of agreement, is there? And they all agree, there isn't. So it turns out then, isn't it, that this is where the problem lies. And what we are discussing today is what, if any, duties do we owe to human beings before they're born? And decent members of this medical school disagree about that. So the real question is not abortion, but what would you need to believe to be an ethical abortionist? And what would you need to believe to be an ethical anti-abortionist? Both positions are positions of faith. So it's the person who uses the word bigot who is invariably the bigot. And the whole place goes quiet. They think. And they nod. And then I just do a consequential analysis of the two. And the uh, as, the old one, has been hammered at for years. But the consequences of the feminist position have not been hammered at. I call it the domino effect of Roe v. Wade. And the casualties are amazing. Personhood, extension into euthanasia and things like that. The loss of justice, it's destroyed justice. Uh, It's also behind the animal rights movement. It's It's destroyed the common good. It's a disaster. And so when I get to the end, they're stunned because they haven't thought about any of those things. Anybody can do it, you just have to practice.